Welcome to part two of this three-part series on the activities of the U.S. intelligence services surrounding the coup against the Allende government in Chile in the early 1970s. In part one, we examine the actions of the Nixon administration and the CIA behind the scenes and their failed coup attempt to prevent Salvador Allende's 1970 inauguration as the president of Chile. Three years after the events discussed in the last podcast, the CIA had created the conditions necessary for a successful coup, and Allende was deposed on September 11, 1973. The irony of the date 9-11 is not lost on those who study history. This episode switches gears to talk about the fates of three American citizens that got caught up in the corruption of the U.S. government and the unlawful steps the Nixon administration would take to cover up the truth about what transpired in Chile. The immorality of these events refutes the moral high ground the U.S. tries to claim and contributes to the level of distrust that exists to this day between Latin American nations and the United States. Charles Horman was an independent journalist living in Chile during the coup against Allende and the subsequent rise of Pinochet. Of those who disappeared during this time, he is the most well-known, as his story and that of his family trying to discover the truth about his murder was turned into the Hollywood movie Missing. He was working with another American, Frank Tarugi, for a small news service, the North American Information Sources. His wife also stated that he was researching to write a book about the 1970 assassination of General Rene Schneider. On the day of the coup, Horman and a family friend were visiting a town on the Chilean coast where they were trapped because movement during the coup was impossible. They searched for other Americans hoping to gather information on what was happening when they came across some U.S. Navy personnel who told him that they were in the country and had finished the job they were sent to do. After four frantic days, they arranged a ride with U.S. Navy Captain Ray Davis, one of the few people who had clearance to travel freely in the country. When they arrived at the U.S. Embassy, Davis informed Horman that they had no plans in place to get Americans out of the country. When Horman and his wife Joyce returned to the embassy on September 17th, an embassy secretary told them that they would have to travel to a U.S. consulate that was a mile away. That night, Chilean soldiers arrived at the Horman residence and arrested him. His wife was not there at the time. She never saw him alive again. Frantic, she turned to American officials for help. What she got was a half-hearted attempt to locate Horman. When she asked the U.S. ambassador to go to the National Soccer Stadium, where all political detainees were held, he refused, telling her that they were trying to remain on good terms with the new Chilean government. Horman's friend, that had been trapped with him for four days on the coast, called Captain Davis to enlist his help. Finally, on September 30th, a Chilean official informed the Americans that Charles Horman had been executed at the soccer stadium. Officials estimate his murder had probably taken place on September 20th, for the nearly four decades that followed his murder, Joyce Horman fought for the truth. In 1979, Horman's family filed a lawsuit against the CIA, hoping to subpoena records that would uncover the truth. A CIA memo regarding the possibility of an investigative subpoena states, quote, According to his wife, he was conducting research for a book on the kidnapping and murder of General Rene Schneider, unquote, and, quote, the sole evidence the plaintiffs have which they contend suggests American involvement in Horman's death, is a statement from Rafael Agustin Gonzalez, a former Chilean military intelligence officer who claims he was present 
when Horman was sentenced to death, unquote. Like Horman, Frank Tarugi was also a journalist who worked for North American Information Sources. He was also a graduate student, studying Chile's economic transition under the Allende presidency. He was living with another American at the time of his murder named David Hathaway. On the night of September 20th, both Tarugi and Hathaway were arrested and taken to the National Soccer Stadium for interrogation. Hathaway testified later that Tarugi had been separated from the rest of the American detainees based on a list of names. On September 25th, U.S. Counsel Fred Purdy received a call from the General Morgue stating that they had received the body of Frank Tarugi three days earlier. On September 27th, Hathaway was brought in to confirm that the bullet-ridden corpse was in fact Tarugi, but Hathaway could not do so. It was not until October 2nd that another friend, Steve Volk, was able to make a positive identification. As with Horman, the CIA refused to help Tarugi's family and went as far to say that they did not have any reports on him whatsoever. Finally, they admitted to a Tarugi family attorney that they did have one piece of information, but it came from a foreign source and was classified for national security reasons. However, it did not contain any information about his murder, nor could it be construed as negative. This was a lie. The information was gathered by West German intelligence officials, and it was a report written in 1972 by the FBI that described Tarugi as a radical who was under FBI surveillance. Both Charles Horman and Frank Tarugi were arrested and murdered within days of each other. After decades of denial and deflection from the U.S. government on their fates, light was finally shed on the truth. In 2011, Chilean Judge Jorge Zapata handed down an indictment charging former U.S. Navy Captain Ray Davis, the man who drove Horman back to Santiago, the man that Joyce Horman pleaded for help in getting out of the country, as an accessory to their murders. Davis relayed the identities of the two Americans, who the CIA had labeled as subversives, to Chilean intelligence officers. Zapata's investigation concluded that their murders were part of an operation carried out by American personnel to investigate the political activities of American citizens in the United States and Chile. A Penn State University mathematics professor, Boris Weisleifer, was also an avid hiker, known for hiking some of the most remote terrains alone. On Christmas Eve in 1984, he took off on a hiking tour of southern Chile. During this time, the country was still run by the military junta of Augusto Pinochet. Two weeks after he headed alone into the wilderness, he vanished. His backpack was supposedly discovered on a riverbank, and Chilean authorities quickly tried to claim that it was a case of accidental drowning, even though his body was never found. Declassified documents show that the State Department sent a cable to the U.S. Embassy in Santiago on January 19, 1985, stating that Weisleifer's colleagues reported him as missing as he had not returned to the university in time to teach classes. For two years, the Chilean government held to the story that Weisleifer had drowned, yet the U.S. refused to consider the case closed. In July of 1987, the embassy in Santiago set a cable to the U.S. with the details of an interview conducted with a former member of the Chilean army who claimed to have knowledge of Weisleifer's fate. At the end, the embassy concludes, quote, his story is so detailed and fits so well with what we know from many other sources of Weisleifer's whereabouts, physical description, and what he was carrying, that it seems likely the source did in fact participate in Weisleifer's arrest, unquote. 
By June 2000, the State Department had over 400 documents relating to the Weislifer case, yet none of that information was ever shared with his family. It was obvious to embassy officials from the beginning that the Chilean accounts regarding Weislifer's drowning were suspect, and his case remained open. However, in 1989, when pressured to investigate the case, the State Department relented, stating that they had no problem with reopening the investigation. What they refused to do was fund the investigation, and they demanded Weislifer's family pay for the legal fees that would be incurred. Finally, in 2012, Chilean Judge Jorge Zapata indicted eight retired police officers, and the case was closed. The truth about what happened to Weislifer will probably never be known. Unlike Horman and Tarugi, the CIA was not involved in his murder. Nevertheless, how the U.S. government handled his family for three decades was criminal. They spent years stringing the family of Professor Weislifer on when they suspected from the very beginning what had happened. Perhaps the most shocking example of the moral corruption of the Nixon administration and their plans to create a coup to remove Allende involved syndicated journalist Jack Anderson. Anderson's investigative reporting was a constant thorn in Nixon's proverbial side. In September of 1972, Anderson broke a story about the administration colluding with the corporate giant ITT to undermine the Chilean economy and create unrest in the country. The Nixon White House had tried all sorts of plots to discredit Anderson. They wiretapped his house, fed him disinformation, and attacked his personal reputation. As a result, Anderson regularly mocked them in his columns. But after Anderson broke the ITT story, the administration debated another method to silence him, murder. They debated several methods. White House aide G. Gordon Libby even volunteered to stab him to death in the street and make it look like a robbery. A Senate committee later confirmed there was a plot to poison Anderson. Libby confirmed the conspiracy and his participation, but it was never carried out. This affair is nowhere as tragic as the fate that befell the Chilean people after the Nixon administration caused the coup that removed Allende and brought about more than a decade-long oppressive dictatorship. Nevertheless, it is shocking to think that a presidential administration would even consider the assassination of a popular journalist as policy. However, it shows how lawless and morally bankrupt the administration was. This was the second part of a three-part podcast series. The first episode examined the attempts of the U.S. to keep Allende from becoming president. For the third and last episode of the series, we will discuss the actual coup on September 11, 1973, and the ramifications that can still be felt when it comes to U.S. relations with Latin America today.